It is another blessed occasion that we've been given this Sunday afternoon to gather, to assemble the way that we are, to do so with the appreciation that's ours of the greatness of not only the Word of God, but of our Christian brothers and sisters in the church of Jesus Christ. Our Master purchased but one church, and certainly as we're thankful to be a part of it, we look forward to the opportunities to encourage its mission and to set forth the greatness of it indeed. Tonight's lesson will be one, as you can see on the wall behind me, that I've entitled basically this, The Absolutely Reliable Bible. I understand that as we open the Word of God and we do so and read from it, that we on many occasions encounter various portions of the Bible which others in our world look upon very differently than you and I look upon it. And by that I mean that they take a different viewpoint than you and I do, and maybe some of that's highlighted upon this slide and the one that follows it. That Bible that you hold in your lap, or that Word of God that we read from so very frequently, is such that it is an incredible treasure. There is no other book, of course, like it. And just a moment ago, we sang Psalm 154, Give me the Bible, holy message shining. And as we sing a song like that, when reminding ourselves of the uniqueness of this book, how that it and it alone provides the information we so desperately need. The purpose of this lesson tonight is this. I hope to take a few things from the Word of God and use it to solidify each of us in the light of our faith. That is to say, when we look at various passages in the Bible, there are many cases in which modern archaeology or otherwise modern observations have shown that it was right. Although the people who wrote it, of course, wrote it hundreds, even thousands of years ago, how'd they know it was right back then? How did they know that the things of which they wrote was exactly correct? And yet today, we are so blessed to appreciate that now as an additional fortification, science has appreciated, archaeology has observed that the things are correct. As you and I close that slide, this next slide, will be one that gives you some information about at least various possibilities in terms of the ways that some people choose to view the Bible. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but it probably does at least put in place the major categories, which likely would be the case. The first thing I would say is there are some people in our world who are aggressively opposed to this book. In other words, they see in it what infringes their rights of liberty. It, in fact, says something opposite to what they want to do, and they just detest it. They are vehemently opposed to this book and all who, in fact, would stand strongly for it. But that's not the only kind of category. There's also those who basically look upon the Bible as a fine book of basically good information for how to live. It's got some good stories in it, they would say, but it also is infused with legends and tales and things which never really happened. In other words, in their mind, the people who wrote it had a good thing they wanted to insist, but they took an actual historical event and then they exaggerated it. And so there's a lot of legends in the Bible, things which never really happened, but things which in, what, in one way relate to things that did. You see the idea. 
they would look upon the Bible as a pretty good book on the whole, but they'd be quick to say you can't believe everything in there because some of it's just a fable. It's just a nicely made-up story. Well, I might say, of course, that you and I don't feel that way, but there are others who do. You may notice at the bottom of the slide, there's another category. And I suspect this one would categorize us. There are those who look upon this book as the literal, exact, absolute, authoritative Word of God. They see every word of it as being correct, as being accurate, as being authoritative, and as being precisely what happened in regard to some particular historical event. You'll notice some verses at the bottom that perhaps challenge us to see how the Bible should be viewed that way. The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue, David exclaimed in 2 Samuel 23, 2. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, verse number 9, Behold, I've put my words in thy mouth. It's still fascinating, isn't it, that Jeremiah wasn't simply given God's suggestions. It was not simply he had some fine ideas, the literal exact Word of God is what He was given. Later on, we observe passages like the lesson text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago. As Brother Dennis read from 2 Timothy 3, it says, "...all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, throughly furnished unto all good works." You and I could add many other verses to a listing like that one that brings to our mind the sweetness and the specialness and the uniqueness of the Word of God. But as you and I close that slide, we notice that the Bible itself, at least in that last point, makes a suggestion. And the suggestion I will simply describe like this. There are many, many things in the Bible which can be checked. And by that I mean they relate to events and they relate to things which are easily checkable. Some of those relate to matters in political science. Some of them relate to matters in geography. Some of them relate to matters in science. But if indeed the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that means it must be correct no matter what subject it happens to be discussing. No matter what particular it happens to be considering, it must be seen as correct. And therefore, there are many ways in which we can check it. And obviously what that will do is, it will lead us to conclude this. If the Bible turns out to be perfectly and 100% accurate in all the things that we can check, then what might that say about those things we cannot check? When it makes statements about life after this one, and it makes particular statements about heaven or about the plan of salvation, things which we have no basis on which to offer an indirect checkability. Should we not anticipate if it's correct on all the things we can check, then should it not be seen as absolutely reliable even in the things we cannot? Those are the ones, of course, we readily accept on the basis of our faithfulness and the steadfastness of the Word of God. It is with that in mind, I'll close that slide, and I'll then say this. Why don't we take just a few things in the Word of God tonight, things which we can check, 
and let's in fact set up the nature of God's Word over against what man has discovered, and let's see how they compare. And if we find again that they compare so favorably, then should not not instill in us an even greater matter of faith relative to the truthfulness of this book. In Joshua chapter 6 is where we're going to first journey tonight. This particular chapter has often been one that is a matter of a great deal of assertion on the part of some. While you're turning to it, let me just share with you by quick remembrance that which took place. The children of Israel had left Egyptian bondage, of course, and they'd already journeyed through the wilderness wandering. They arrived at the Jordan River at flood stage and they crossed it by the blessing of God drying up that water. And thus, millions of Israelites crossed the Jordan River, the very first city in the land of Palestine, which they were ready to attack and they were ready to conquer, was the well-known and populous city of Jericho. In Joshua chapter 6, we have the inspired record of the events of how that took place. I might at least quickly rehearse some of it because the details likely are very familiar to us. Joshua had been told by God what to do. It may well be regarded as one of the most unorthodox military strategies in history. Here, Joshua, is what I want you to do. You march around the city with the armed men once a day for six days. I don't want you to say a word. You march in silence around the city. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around it seven times in one day. And when you complete the seventh journey, you shout... And when you do, the walls of Jericho will fall down. And you will have easy access to conquer this city. Now, I suppose that there are many who, using that statement we earlier made, would say, look, that never really happened. Oh, it may be, they would say, that the Israelites conquered the city of Jericho, but to march around it 13 times over the course of a few days and the wall fall down flat without ever so much as a military engagement... That was just a fine story that somebody wrote a long, long time ago to encourage and enhance the faithfulness of the people of Israel. Surely you don't really believe that the literal record of Jericho, as it's unfolded in Joshua chapter 6, really happened. You may notice about the middle of that slide. A number of years ago, an archaeological team led by Dr. John Garstang, excavated the area of what was ancient Jericho. And as you can see, in the period of time from 1929 and the years following, extensive studies in that area not only were done, but some careful observations about the particulars that went along with all the detailed sedimentary matters that were there. As you can see on the slide, Let me point out just a few of the things that that archaeological team discovered. First of all, the Bible says this. May I quote, The walls fell down flat. It's not as though they partly fell, that is to say, perhaps halfway upward fell, whereas the the lower part remained intact. The text says the walls, all of them, fell down flat. It's interesting that Dr. Garstang 
made the following observation. It was clear in the rubble that they appreciated that there had been a double wall arrangement all the way around the city of Jericho. And that when it fell, it fell down a hillside. And you could easily tell the particulars of not only what was involved in the walls themselves, but that they had been connected. All of it was evident. That leads me to note the following. The text of the Bible also says that upon the completion of these things that it was burnt with fire. They saw in those blocks and in those bricks the characteristic of very clear fire consumption. The color not only was different, but the composition was as well. That analysis leads me to note the bottom. They also investigated and noted very carefully what you and I would consider incredibly interesting. The people of Israel had been told, when you conquer Jericho, you keep yourselves from the devoted thing. Now you and I would appreciate in most cases that those enemies who were conquering a city would loot it and take what they wanted. For after all, upon conquering it, now would belong to them, would it not? They found amazing and overwhelming and extensive evidence that the foodstuffs, such as wheat and dates, etc., were untouched. It had been preserved through the course of time, exactly as one would have expected it to be, if the Bible is correct. The point is that there's actually a fair amount then of evidence of this team and other saints who, upon the analysis of the conquering of Jericho, found it to be in accordance to what Joshua chapter 6 uncovers and also what Joshua chapter 7 states as well. Now that surely would be a very interesting thing to us and would bolster our faith. But let's look at a few other examples in the Bible as well. As you and I come in the New Testament to Acts the 19th chapter, we encounter another very intriguing scene, one which captivates our attention because in it a riot took place. The city of Ephesus became overwhelmed with a riot. The riot was a very disturbing thing, not only to the people of that day, but you and I would imagine through the lens of time how the Roman government would have looked very unfavorably upon a riot, disturbing what they demanded to be the case in peace. Some of these details, though, lead us to say this. That riot, of which Paul, of course, was a part, you and I appreciate this. Is there any evidence, other than the Bible, of what the Bible would say about the events of that riot? May I turn our attention to the work of J.T. Wood, who in 1869 and the years following made some interesting discoveries from the perspective of ancient history relative to the events unfolded for us in this particular chapter. Let me invite you to note a few points. First of all, the ancient city of Ephesus, according to the Bible at least, was the centerpiece. It was the center location for the worship of the goddess Diana. People from all over would arrive at that place, and there was even a notable temple to Diana located in Ephesus. Could I invite you to notice? When they investigated the area, they found not only extensive evidence of the worship of Diana, they found exactly a theater which would exactly have been a 
likely place, exactly to where Acts 19 would have said that riot took place. The text of the Bible again tells us that the people rushed into this place wherein there was a great public discussion about what should occur. Well, that would have been this amphitheater. Isn't it amazing how that it was found likely just as the Bible would suggest? But look at one last thing. Ephesus, at least as the Bible would indicate, it was a very wealthy city. The archaeologists found it to be exactly so, with tremendous evidence of the wealth attached to the nature of the citizenry of that place. Maybe to say all of that is to say this. The later parts of the New Testament also refer to Ephesus, not only in the relation of Acts 19, but also in Revelation 2. And there was nothing that was discovered that's not consistent with the revelation of the Bible concerning those places. Let me just pause at this point and say, when you and I then come to the sections in the Word of the Bible, even if others of our day would have a great deal of skepticism about it, you and I can believe it absolutely. After the ride in Ephesus, let me turn our attention back to the Old Testament for just a moment. Some of the kings that are mentioned in the Old Testament... Now, some of those kings, of course, are names difficult to pronounce, and some of them are even kings about which very, very little is known. I'm just going to rather quickly mention some of these. The Bible makes record of a king named Omri. He was one of the kings of Israel. He was, in fact, right before the man we know of as Ahab, the one who married Jezebel, But in other words, Omri was a very well-known biblical king, at least from the perspective of the Bible. But those who would look with some intensity would say, Look, if there really was a king named Omri, should there not be some record of his reign in some book besides the Bible? Well, there were many who, at least for a while, began to have some concern about that, but... There came a time when the archaeologist Spade turned up what has since come to be called the Moabite stone. And on that particular stone, also we find references to a black obelisk of Shalmaneser. And amazing enough, the actual reference to the reign of a man named Omri is on both of them. Don't you find that interesting? extra-biblical references and evidence that there really was a king named Omri and he reigned about the very time the Bible said he did and he reigned over the country the Bible said he did, the Bible was right. King Omri perhaps leads me to ask another one. King Uzziah. Now he was one of the kings of Judah. He was later afflicted with a very terrible disease called leprosy, but at least we can note this, he did reign according to the Bible. We read about him in Second Chronicles 26 and the chapters surrounding it. But one more time, I think we could all be impressed. There is a reference to a king named Uzziah reigning over Judah in the very artifacts of a king named Tiglath-Pileser. Now, the Bible also records him as well, but isn't it fascinating that the secular world has no problem with him because they have evidence of his existence. But of Uzziah, almost nothing is known until you found the inscription on this man's gravestone. 
and the understanding attached to the actual existence of Uzziah. The Bible had been right all along. Those two kings lead me to ask, even in some cases, kings other than kings of either Israel or Judah are mentioned in the Bible. And these two are often very interesting sources of discussion. No doubt one of the ones resting near the top of that list would be a man named Sargon. Isaiah chapter 20 verse number 1 clearly references a king named Sargon. He was a king of Assyria. And inasmuch as his name is listed, there were for many years a direct attack upon the Bible. Look, there is not a single record of a king named Sargon, so they said, in any book outside the Bible. We have record of various and sundry ones, but there's a gap in the sense that there's not a single reference to him. In fact, for quite a few years, there was an allegation that here's a clear and unmistakable mistake in the Bible. But look at what's at the bottom of that slide. The time came when, upon continued archaeological investigation, the spade turned up a palace at Korzabad, which was the very palace of Sargon. Inscriptions were all over it. Evidence was abundant that here was an actual reigning king named Sargon who reigned at the very time the Bible said he did. And at once, all of that opposition just vanished. The Word of God had been right. The Word of God had been accurate. One of the last things on that slide is the confirmation then of Isaiah 20 verse 1 placed an incredible stamp of appreciation not only upon that chapter in Isaiah, but also some of the other chapters in that same book. Let me turn our attention to at least another possible consideration, this time in geography. All of us are well aware that the Bible has many geographical references within it. Among the 1,189 Bible chapters... So many times some particular statement is made, and it might even be a statement in passing. But yet may I say that geography can be pretty quickly checked. Let's just list a few of them. In Acts 15, verse number 1, the Bible says that in regard to the motion, that they went down from Jerusalem to Antioch. It's easy to check. Is Antioch of Syria lower in elevation than the city of Jerusalem? Doesn't take but a moment to check that, and you find the answer to be yes. And so when the Bible writer said that they went down, well, he was just making a statement of fact. The journey of the roadway from Jerusalem to Antioch travels downhill. Well, what about another one? In Genesis 12, verse number 10, Abraham there, it was said went down from Egypt to Canaan. Is Canaan lower in elevation than Egypt? We could have certainly checked that. And that's what I mean by that first part in the lesson I noted. Certain things in the Bible, you and I might almost read past some of them, but they can be checked. You find that one more time the answer is correct. What about the third one? When Jesus spoke the parable, we call the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. He said very clearly that this person was traveling downward from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
And he fell among thieves, you and I might remember. Now, did the Lord make a statement of truth? Is it downhill? You and I can easily check it. We find that it is. He did travel down, at least in the characteristic development of the Lord's parable. We might there pause and say, some of these might even be viewed as almost nothing more than incidental. But may I say, if they were found to be incorrect, couldn't it cast an element of doubt? Well, if the Bible is wrong in its geographical references, then is it trustworthy in its other references? Look at the fourth one I've asked you to consider. In Colossians 4.16, Paul gave the instruction, you might even call it an order. This epistle I've written to you, Colossae, you let the brethren at Laodicea read it. We could ask, so how near was Laodicea to Colossae? When you and I pull out an ancient Bible map and we notice in many ways they were ancient twin cities, only 25 miles between them. It was no problem then for them to appreciate a sharing of the epistle that had been written to the Laodiceans. You read it at Colossae and vice versa. Maybe another one. In John 18, 1, when it says that the Lord and His apostles crossed the Kidron Valley, the Kidron Brook, as they journeyed to the Mount of Olives, was it true that the Mount of Olives was right across from the temple across the Kidron Valley? It was. A quick look at any map of ancient Jerusalem will tell us that it was. How about yet another one? This one, again, would be easy enough to look past. The New Testament asserts that Jesus gave order at the Passover season for them to sit down on the green grass. It's when He, in fact, fed the 5,000. Was that the season of the year in which the grass would be green? Was that the season of the year one would anticipate the existence of green grass? It was. Again, you and I know about the season of our year. That would have been about April for us. And things would have been just fine to consider the existence of grass that was green. All of these I would simply offer as considerations that as we read the Word of God, maybe they allow us to look at everything that we read with a degree of trustworthiness and reliability because men didn't write it. Oh, a man may have been holding the pen, but it was the Holy Spirit directing what was written. I thought we'd look at some political science matters. Political science, this one is in many ways just as interesting as the other ones have been. There are times we don't thrill, I suppose, at the thought of politics and political science. But all I mean by it is various civilizations of people and the particulars of the way they lived. Look at this one, the Hittites. We know very well the Old Testament refers to these peoples on many occasions. We know roughly where they lived according to the Bible, and yet there were others who at this point were quick to say, there is not a single evidence of a civilization of people known as Hittites. Only this book called the Bible mentions it. Don't you suppose then that the writers made them up? They referred to them as basically nothing more than what some other literary figures would note. 
You and I have read stories when we were in high school or even in college, and we took literature classes, and it referred to peoples like Lilliputians or otherwise, people who never really existed, but the author made them up to make a particular point. Some thought the Hittites were that way. All of that changed, may I say, in 1906, when not only was evidence for them found, their capital city was discovered. Could I point out that? That capital, a very unusual name for us, but Baghazoi. And as they found this particular place and uncovered the particulars of this particular city, there wasn't a thing found about it inconsistent with the nature of the Bible's revelation. That is to say, it existed roughly where you would expect, in the time frame you would expect, meeting the enemies you would expect. The Word of God turned out to be correct. Perhaps another one would be this one. The Word of God, especially in Genesis, makes reference to another group of people called Horites. Now, we know even less about them. The very few places in the Bible where they're mentioned, they simply are highlighted in almost a passing fashion in connection with some element in the people of God. But it's a rather amazing thing that archaeological evidence for Horites was exactly found in the Transjordan region, consistent with the revelation both in Genesis 36 and also Genesis chapter 14. And by that I mean in Genesis 14, there were other kings who were specifically mentioned, and these peoples are found in exactly the right layers and sediment, consistent with them. The Bible was right. The Roman kings, the last one on that slide. You and I know in more recent times, we've learned more about the Roman Empire, but could I at least say this? In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, the writer Luke makes reference to several specific Roman leaders. And they too are found to be exactly consistent with what we know to be true from our knowledge of the Roman Empire. All of these evidences which we at least have mentioned, I hope have been a fortifying matter for your faith and mine when we open the pages of the Bible. I might pause to say that a list like we've attempted to construct tonight could be constructed many, many times over. Evidences in geography, evidences in political science, evidences in history, evidences even in the literal consideration of science itself. But I hope that we've at least been reminded of these few matters which bring us to a point of conclusion. The Word of God is accurate. It is not merely a book to be looked upon as fancifully fabulistic or a book that just contains myths and legends. The people the Bible lists, they really did live. When you and I read about kings and individuals in the Old Testament and even those in the New, there really were people by those names. And they did just what the Bible said they did. And so when you and I read it, if we can trust it on all these things, the things we can check, things like geography and political science and things like history, if it has turned out to be accurate in every regard to them, what might we expect about all of its statements of spiritual things 
as for example, when it talks about what happens at baptism, that one's sins are washed away. Well, clearly there's no scientific matter that can prove that. But isn't it wonderful to think that if the Bible is correct on all those things we can check, shouldn't it be counted as reliable on all those things related to matters like that one? Of course it should. And you and I thrill at the thought of conviction we have about the Word of God. Thy Word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. To borrow the wording of Psalm 119, verse 160. Thy Word is true from the beginning. Tonight I hope we can leave greater fortified in our faith and conviction about the accuracy of the Word of God. Tonight, if there would be any way we can offer a public helpfulness to anybody that's here, perhaps praying on your behalf for forgiveness of sins known publicly, we'd be honored to do that. And may I say that if we just need to pray for strength, maybe you're battling particular issues in life and you'd like the convicted prayers of a group of faithful Christians, we'd be honored to pray for you. Aren't we told the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much? James 5.16. Tonight, we'd be happy to do that as well. If we could be of assistance in any of these ways, we invite you to come and do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.